Well, a few weeks ago, I got an alert on my cell phone that my credit card had been stolen. And I could look on the phone and see the suspicious charges, and it was very interesting, actually. My card was used in New York City, and the person who stole it spent $7 at a gas station, $24 at a sandwich shop, and $37 at a salon. And I was very disappointed in this person. Um, not just because they stole my card, but because they didn't do anything good with it. Um, they've got free money in the greatest city in the entire world, and all they did was top off the tank, swing by a deli, and go get a haircut. You know, Of all the crooks I could have had, I got one with no imagination whatsoever. <laughs> and so I, I ended up having to go through the rigmarole of all of this account change just so they could have a salami sandwich. It was very annoying. I do hope everybody liked their haircut, though, because that's important. Well, we've all been hurt by people who do what they want with no thought for other people. And we've all hurt people when we've done what we want with no thought for others. And self-control, which we're going to talk a little bit about this morning, is the ability to stop yourself from doing just the thing that you want and instead doing the thing in life that's right or that's best or that's wisest. We've all experienced at times in life, in fact, most days, probably every hour of every day, uh, times when our hearts are divided and there's things that we know we should do competing with the things that we want to do and we feel sometimes like inside of us there's a civil war that's being raged within us. And, and self-control is in part the ability to win the war. It's reining ourselves in. But self-control is much more than just saying no to the wrong things. Sometimes self-control means that we have to say yes to the right things. If you want to write a book, let's say, or learn how to play the piano or build a treehouse, there are things in doing that that you must be self-controlled about as well. And so self-control is a mixture of sometimes saying no and sometimes saying yes. It's living for the best purposes and outcomes in life. And our passage this morning speaks to both the yes and the no of self-control. One of the wonderful things about the Bible is that it is full of so many rich and vivid uh, illustrations and analogies. And in the passage that we're going to look at today, which is the last part of what Mary Kay read for us, what Paul does is he describes the Christian life in an analogy. He says it's, it's like athletics in two particular areas. Now, this letter was written to the people who were in the city of Corinth, to the church that was there. And in Corinth, every other year, they used to host Olympic Games. It was called the Ithmian Olympic Games. And so people were very familiar with the Olympics in that city. And Paul here highlights two events that they would have known very well. The first is running, and the second is boxing. And what Paul does is he asks us through this passage two important things as it comes to living a person's life as a follower of Christ. And the two questions are this. Are you running to win? And are you willing to fight? 
That's what, that's what Paul is asking here. When it comes to the Christian life, are you running to win and are you willing to fight? And those are the two things that we're going to think a bit about this morning. So he begins with the first illustration of life being like a race. If you look again in verse 24 and 25, Paul writes, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable Okay, so Paul says life is like a race. It's like running a marathon. Is, is there anybody here who's ever run a marathon before? Okay, how about a half marathon? Two of you have run the full. A few of you maybe have run the half marathon. Running a marathon obviously is a huge undertaking, which is why there aren't more of us in the room who raised our hands, right? Uh, the training for this is incredible. In fact, I, I think we have a video that kind of illustrates training for a marathon. If, if we could run that. All right. Well, the reason that video is hilarious is because nobody could ever do that and win a marathon, right? I mean, winning or running a marathon is, is changing your entire lifestyle towards that goal, and it's a tremendous commitment. Training for a marathon has to begin far in advance, probably up to a year. You come out with a plan, and you've got to carve out time and begin to build up your weekly mileage, right? You're doing uh, base runs and long runs. You've got rest and recovery. You're doing speed work. You've got to think about your diet and your shoes and your gear and how you're going to stay hydrated. To run a marathon, you've got to fight through exhaustion and, and injury and discomfort, and you've got to figure out how to stay motivated and how to be willing to adjust your lifestyle in whatever is needed. Completing a marathon is an incredible commitment. Think about this. Think about if you wanted to win a marathon, right? 45,000 runners competed in Chicago, and if, if this much training is required just to, just to run a marathon, then think about what it would take to win it. It would require incredible self-control. So why do people run marathons? Why would anyone do it if it, it requires that much effort? Well, people run marathons for the finish line. People run for the finish line. 
the prize, the reward at the end is not just a, a medal that's handed to you, but it's the sense of accomplishment in what you've done. Now, back in uh, Corinth, the winner of the marathon that year would receive a wreath. And I did a little research on this. Up until 5 BC, it was a wreath that was made out of celery. And then sometime after that, they altered it, and it was then made out of pine leaves. Apparently, what happened is that people kept dipping the celery in peanut butter and eating it after they were done. So they kind of made the the shift to pine leaves after that. I need to stop trying those jokes. (laughs) Sometimes they're best not to be used. (laughs) Anyway, what Paul is saying here is he's saying this. Live your life with the finish line in mind, right? He says, race for the goal. Now, if you were to ask the average person on the street what they're aiming for in life, you'd get a lot of different answers. But if you could narrow down all of the answers, it would be something like this. A person would say, I'm trying to get to the place in life where I'm content with who I am and what I'm doing. And what they would most likely generally describe is that the goal of their life is just to be happy and for other people that they love to be happy as well. And what's interesting about that is that when you read through the Bible, the Bible speaks a lot about happiness and pleasure and those sorts of things. And it never tells us that desiring to be happy is a bad thing, right? The Bible would never say that God wants people to be unhappy or that he wants us to suffer in life. But when you read about happiness in the Bible, what you realize is that it's pictured in the scriptures as never being enough. It's pictured as something that's overrated. It's an inferior goal. And the reason is because happiness, the Bible would teach, is like trying to nail jello to the wall. Happiness is something that's constantly shifting. It's like a toddler, very temperamental. And something that we think is going to make us happy in the end doesn't. Or something that we think makes us happy and does at one point ends up being the very thing that makes us unhappy later. I remember once meeting with a woman who was um, planning to divorce her husband. And this woman's behavior was so ugly and harmful. Uh, She was hurting everyone around her, especially her children, but she couldn't seem to see it or face it. And at one point, what she did is she turned and she said, don't you think that God wants me to be happy? Right? And, And that was her goal. That was her life goal. Her eyes were so set on her own happiness that she was blind to anything else that might be important in life. Now, remember thinking at the time that the funny thing about the conversation was that the woman was divorcing her husband because she thought that it would bring her happiness. But she had married him only a few years earlier because she thought the same thing. She thought he would make her happy. And that is so often the way that happiness works. We think a new car will make us happy, and then we're miserable because we've got to pay for it later. Happiness shifts and it changes. In fact, the book of Ecclesiastes says that chasing pleasure, chasing chasing happiness is like chasing wind. When you finally caught it, it slips through your fingers. It shifts and changes and goes in, in a different direction. Happiness is not lasting. 
And Paul pictures it here like a wreath that's made of pine leaves. It's perishable. I want to be really clear. I'm not at all trying to be a downer on happiness. And I think happiness is, is a good thing. I'm just trying to say it's a bad goal. And Christians have a higher calling. God gives us in life a different prize. We don't just live to be happy. What the Bible pictures is that Christians turn that over for something better. And Jesus describes that, as he so often did, in a story. He uses a parable. He describes a man who is out for a walk one day and decides to take a shortcut, and he cuts through an empty field. And as he's cutting through the empty field, he trips over something, looks down, and he realizes that in the dirt there is an enormous treasure. I mean, an unimaginable treasure that he realizes would make a person rich beyond their wildest imagination. And Jesus says this guy is is wise. And so he, he goes home and he puts everything that he owns up for sale. He sells everything that he's got. And he takes the proceed from that sale and he goes to the person who owns the field and he purchases that field. And now that treasure is his. And what Jesus is saying is that in the same way, when we trust Christ to forgive our sins, right, through the payment of the death of the Son of God on the cross, the Bible teaches that we gain unimaginable treasure. God says to us, everything I have is yours. We gain heaven. We gain eternal life. God says, I'm going to give you new and perfect bodies and minds. You will have a kingdom that cannot be shaken. We trade life alone to now life with a loving father who God promises will always take care of our needs. We trade guilt and fear for God's grace and his peace. All of these things that we've been talking about for the last week. And best of all, we go from certain death to an indestructible life. We gain everything. But in this trade, Jesus was saying, we sell everything. To gain the treasure, we give up all that we have. To buy the field, we die. And the Apostle Paul explains this in the book of Galatians. He describes um, himself to the Galatians as having been crucified with Christ, okay? He says, just as Christ died, it was like I died up there on the cross with him. And Paul says, so it's no longer me, Paul, who lives, but it's Christ who lives in me. And in other words, what he was saying was, when I bought that field, my old life with my old desires, my old systems of value, my own lifestyle and goals. He said, all of those things are dead. And he says, now I live for a higher purpose than just my own happiness and self-fulfillment. We are not our own, Paul says. Now our lives belong to God. And God gives every person that that's true of a new and better purpose in life. And we say, well, what is that? Well, Jesus tells us exactly what that is, and he does it in a way that's so succinct and eloquent. He describes the meaning of life, right? 
philosophers have debated this for, for, for hundreds and hundreds of years. Why are we here? What are we supposed to do? And Jesus answers that question in Matthew 22. A lawyer comes up to him and asks him, what are the two, uh, he says, what, what is the greatest commandment of the law? Right? What's the greatest thing that I ought to make my life all about? And we're told that Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So the Christian life Jesus taught is to be primarily about loving God and loving other people. This in life is our highest calling. It's supposed to be our primary concern. It's the meaning of life. It's our purpose. We are to rejoice in the one who gave us the treasure and point other people to it. That's what we're supposed to live for. And the thing that's so wonderful about this is that anyone can do it. You can be a king and live out this, perf- this purpose. You can be the lowest servant and live it out too. But what it requires, and we all know this, is incredible self-control. To make your chief aim in life, to love God with all of your heart and all of your soul and all of your strength and to love your neighbor as yourself, takes incredible self-control. Do you remember the movie, It's a Wonderful Life? That's a great movie. That was a movie that teaches these principles so well. If you've seen the movie, you remember the main character, George Bailey. He starts out at the beginning of the movie as such a likable person with all kinds of dreams and plans for his life. He wants to be an architect and you find yourself just rooting for him. He wants to get out of this small town and go make his mark on the world. But tragedy strikes his entire family, and it strikes the town. And instead of living his life following his dreams, he spends his entire life giving up his dreams. It's just one thing after another. And every time he makes yet another sacrifice for the people around him, you, you just feel so, so bad for the guy, right? As you watch the movie, you feel like you're being kicked in the stomach at certain parts. But it's not until the end of the movie that you see the impact of this man's choices and how he lived his life, and you realize this guy could not have chosen a better life. What the movie teaches is that there's something richer and deeper and better than living for the pursuit of happiness. And in this passage, what we see is Paul's shining example of this gleaming through. Paul's passion for the gospel and his heartfelt desire to see people, uh, to lead them to the treasure, um, is really incredible. He says, though I'm free from all, I make myself a servant to all. In other words, Paul says, though I can do anything that I want with my life, though I'm totally free to follow any dream in life that I would desire. He says, I I put myself below everybody. And whatever their place is, whatever their background in life is, he says, I put myself in their shoes, right? I try to think like they do, that I might have a chance to share with them the riches of the grace of God. That's the race that Paul 
was running. And Paul said, every athlete exercises self-control in all things. In other words, it's hard. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. Okay, this starts to get very interesting. He says, he says to run a marathon requires all kinds of training and effort and discipline. And he says, those people that run it, their prize is made out of celery. He says, how much greater is the prize at the end of our race? So what is our prize exactly? What is the prize of the race of the Christian life? Well, the prize is a kingdom. The kingdom of heaven, which is described as paradise. But here's the thing. The prize is really even more than that. It's not just a kingdom. It's a king. Our prize is a king. The prize of the Christian life is not just God's stuff. It's God himself. And there is nothing better in all the universe than relationship with God. Let me, let me take a little bunny trail for a minute. I just want to explain this a little bit. I think it's so important. You know, the longing of every child in life is to be affirmed by their parents. Every child wants that so desperately. I find that with my own son. There are times when I'll say things to him where I realize I have to fight for his attention. He's two years old, right? And so if I tell him to put his toys away, I usually have to say it twice. But when I'm affirming my little two-year-old, when I say to him, hey, buddy, you did a great job sharing with your sister. Or when I say, man, that slide that you went down, that was so tall. You are really brave to do something like that. I'm proud of you. I find those are things I only have to say once. And the reason is because he's listening. Many of us in this room, we have a confidence in life because we received early on our parents' affirmation. Others of us, we missed out on that in life, and that's very hard. That's very disappointing. That's very painful for people. But we all long for that from our earthly parents, and honestly, it doesn't matter what age you, you are. That's true all of our lives. In the same way, I believe we long for that from God. I believe we long for God's affirmation. You know, some of the most inspiring words in all the Bible were yet another parable that Jesus told. This one is in Matthew 25. He describes a story where there's a master who leaves to go away on a long journey, and he puts some of his servants in charge of all of his possessions. And when the master finally, after a long, long time, returns from the journey, he finds that some of his servants have done a really good job They've, they've taken care of all that he's entrusted them with. And Jesus said that his master says to this one particular servant, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Now think about this for a second. In the same way, God has entrusted you with your life 
as his servant. God has entrusted you with your life as his servant. And your life is so incredibly important. The reason it's so important is because only you can live it. You are the only person who has your personality and your giftings and your passions and your circumstances in life. You are the only one who has your family or your spouse or your children or co-workers or friends or neighbors. God has given you opportunities in life that nobody else ever in the history of the world has had or will ever have again. There are people in your world right now that nobody else is ever going to pray for them if you don't. There are people who nobody will pursue their heart except for you. Nobody is going to care about their destiny except for you. Nobody could, will ever point them to the treasure except for you. And the best thing, think about this, the best thing that could ever happen to you at the end of your time on earth would be to stand before your Savior and to hear him say, I gave you your life. I entrusted your life and everything in it to you. And you know what? You did good with it. I'm pleased. I'm happy with the way you stewarded all that I gave you. We don't run our race to get into heaven. That was a race that Jesus ran. He he won that prize for us. But we don't run the race to try to get God to love us because the fact is God could never love you more. It's impossible. He'll never love you less. We don't run the race to secure something from God because we already have it. Everything was secured through Christ. The reason that we run is we run because we love him. We run because we want to please him. We run out of gratitude for all that God has done for us. And then there's this. We run because God tells us that it matters if we do. The way we live our lives matter to God. And to one day hear the voice of Jesus, our creator and king, the one who gave up his life for us, ran the race for us, rules the kingdom of heaven to hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful. That is a prize worth running for. Paul says, don't just run the race. He says, run it to win. So many people try to fit their faith into the cracks and crevices of their life. But Paul says, live with a passion. Live the Christian life with zeal, with a fire that burns in your heart. Make it your primary purpose, your your chief aim, and your first love. We run for relationship with God. That's the prize of the Christian life. And yet still, staying on course takes such self-control. It's so hard. It requires cultivating the kind of relationship with God that will see you through the race. Self-control, I really believe, in so many ways, is saying yes to the things in life that fuel our love for God. I was really impacted reading a quote. Um, This was several weeks ago, but I haven't been able to get it out of my head. It was 
said by a man whose name was George Mueller. I think this is one of the secrets to running this race. He says, The first great and primary business to which I ought to attend every day is to have my soul happy in the Lord. First thing every day that I need to do is to put myself in a place where I'm enjoying God. I love him, where my heart is happy in him. And so let me ask you this question. What is it that in your life that inspires you to love God more? What is it in your life that stirs your affection for God? Do that. The Bible tells us what some of those things are. It's living a life that's rooted in the Bible, in God's word. So we're not just living out of our own head, we're living out of his. It's spending time with God in prayer, but meaningful prayer, right? Heartfelt prayer. It's the church. The Bible says don't neglect church. Don't forget about the people of God. You need them too. And, and for some of us, there's other things too. Some of us, we, we just it helps us to be out in nature. I'm like that. I know that if I want the flames of my faith to stay hot, I've got to be outside some. It really helps me. For some people, it's music. For some people, it's journaling. For other people, it's reading books that are encouraging to them. If you want to run the race with strength, we can't live on donuts. We've got to live on the things that fuel us. Part of living with self-control is keeping the flames of your spiritual life hot. It's saying yes to God. I'll make you my highest priority. I'm going to be serious about my faith. It's growing to love God more and more with all your heart and all your soul and all your strength in deciding just to love the people who are around us. This is our race. This is our purpose. And God himself, relationship with God is our prize. Well, Paul also asks us a second question. He says, are you willing to run? And he says, are you willing to fight? To live this kind of life requires a fight. And it's very interesting the way that he phrases this. In fact, this is an amazing analogy that he gives because there's a twist in it. So if you look in verse 26, he says, So I don't run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Now when he says, I discipline my body, if you look, there should be a little notation um, in the margin of your, bo- of your Bible, what he says is in Greek, it says, I pummel my body and make it a slave. Okay? Here's what he meant by this. He, he, he's trying to, to say this idea that it's not easy. Running the race of the Christian life does not come naturally. If in your life you feel like this is a struggle, the reason is, is because it's a struggle. If it wasn't, no self-discipline would be necessary. But self-control to run is a fight. It's a boxing match. And Paul says, I don't beat at the air like some untrained, undisciplined boxer. He says, I discipline my body and I keep it under control. And again, what he said there is literally, I pummel myself, okay? So the, the, the twist of this illustration is Paul says, I'm actually boxing against myself. That's what he says. 
That's what's required. He says, I have to do battle against my own lack of self-discipline. I have to do battle to rein myself in and keep myself under control. Paul says, the boxing match is with me. I hope that gives you a little comfort that the Apostle Paul would say that and feel that and experience that. It's hard. It's not easy. And Paul says, I beat myself up. Some people think what he was saying was, I give myself a black eye so that I'm not disqualified from the very thing that I preach to others. Okay? Paul did not want to be disqualified in his race. Now, there's one thing that's so important to understand about this. What he's not talking about there is salvation. Okay? The race is not salvation. Salvation is the race Christ wins for us. Okay? It's something different that he's talking about when he says being disqualified. Um, imagine that a few weeks ago, Tom Llewellyn was on vacation, okay? And Tom came home, and I said to Tom, hey, Tom, how was your trip? And Tom said, oh, it was great. I really had a fun weekend in New York City. And I said, oh, yeah, good. I said, hey, I, I see that you got your hair cut. Um, by any chance, Tom, did you eat at a deli while you were there? And, and through that process, what I realized, let's say, is that Tom had stolen my credit card. Okay, he was the one. Now, Tom has a lot more imagination than that guy did, but let's say it was Tom. If it came to light that Tom had stolen my credit card, right, and all of us knew that that had happened, would Tom lose his salvation? No, right? Because salvation is a free gift from Christ. You can't earn it yourself, and you can't lose it yourself. It's up to him. He runs that race. However, there would be a huge impact on our church if Tom stole my credit card or he stole your credit card, right? And what he would be like is he'd be like a a fallen runner. He'd be like someone who had lost his platform. And what Paul is saying here is he's saying, I don't want to lose mine. He's saying, I don't want to stumble in the race. I don't want anything that I would ever do to get in the way of my opportunities to love God and to love other people. And what I think you see in this little section of Paul, that he did not consider his work to be his duty in life. It was his joy. It was his pleasure. It was a purpose that he was driven in. And he said, that's why I do it. I will do whatever is necessary to keep myself in check so that I can keep running the race. My father-in-law, as I kind of wind down here, he told me a story a long time ago, and actually a few years ago I I shared this here, so maybe some of you have heard this before. But he said that when he was in high school in Indiana, where he lives, he took a shop class, and one day um, when the teacher wasn't looking, he stole a tool. And it wasn't a real expensive tool, but it was significant. And... um, He took it home and he kept it and he graduated from high school and he said that um, on his way to work he would drive past the school where he went and every time that he drove by the school he thought of that little tool that he had stolen and he said every day as I thought about that it stole my joy. Well he went through this for 20 years and he said at age 44 he couldn't take it anymore And he called the school and he asked if he could meet with the principal. And they set up a meeting. The principal didn't know what it was about. And he said he walked into the school to go meet with the principal. 
And it, it was all that he could take just to keep walking those steps. You know, he, he felt like he was in ninth grade again in trouble and, and sent to the principal's office. And he wanted to turn and run away. But he sat down with the principal and he told him what he'd done. And he, he wrote a check for $200. And he gave it to the principal. And he left. And you know what my father-in-law would tell you? He would say that was the turning point of his entire spiritual life. That was where something changed for him. He said, until that point, I was living a defeated Christian life. He'd say, to use this language, until that point, I was like a stumbling runner. I, I, I was being uh, uh, sapped, uh, sapping away at my strength to run was this guilt that I experienced every time I thought about that. And here's what I want to ask you. Is there anything in life that's defeating you? Is there anything in your life that is robbing you of your joy, that is smothering the flames in your heart? Is there anything that's sapping away at your spiritual strength, robbing you of your love for God or others? And Paul's question is such a good one. Are you willing to fight it? Are you willing to say no? Are you willing to do whatever it takes so that you can run with everything that you have in you? Self-control is the ability to stop yourself from just doing what you want and instead to do what's best and right and wisest. It's saying yes to the things in life that fuel your love for God. And it's saying no to anything in your life that might douse that flame. How about it, Paul would say. Are you running to win? And to do that, are you willing to fight? Well, I want to end um, today with a prayer. I I want to pray for all of us. And um, I actually have a prayer that I'm going to read. I don't normally do that. And I hope it will still be meaningful to you, even though read prayers aren't always that way. It was a prayer that was written by a a man named named Charles Spurgeon, and I thought that it just fit what we're talking about here so well that that we would read that. And hopefully, as I say these words, they will come from your heart, too. The language is a little dated, but I think you'll, you'll catch the meaning. So why don't we stand and we'll close with this. Let's pray. Lord, help me to glorify thee. I am poor. Help me to glorify thee by contentment. I am sick. Help me to give thee honor by patience. I have talents. Help me to extol thee by spending them for thee. I have time, Lord. Help me to redeem it, that I may serve thee. I have a heart to feel, Lord. Let that heart feel no love but thine and glow with no flame but affection for thee. I have a head to think, Lord. Help me to think of thee and for thee. Thou hast put me in this world for something, Lord. Show me what that is, and help me to work out my life purpose. I cannot do much, but as the widow put in her two mites, which were all her living, so, Lord, I cast my time and eternity too into thy treasury. I am all thine. Take me and enable me to glorify thee now 
in all that I say, in all that I do, and with all that I have. Amen.